Welcome to the Deeper Into Movies podcast. My name is Stephen T. Hanley. I am the founder and lead creator of Deeper Into Movies. We are a pop-up cinema based in London and New York. Today we have two guests, Mickey Down and Conrad Kay, the creators, exec producers of Industry, a HBO BBC series set in the world of finance. Fantastic show, incredible writing great cast incredible music we get into all of this in the episode this is a hour-long episode we go deep and we really get into script writing developing a show casting the music we talk about sopranos and Mad Men versus the wire this is a great chat one for the real geek heads out there and we talk about wu-tang this show's got it all here we go me and Mickey Down and Conrad K. So I always ask, when did you guys get into movies and were there specific movies that blew your mind as a teenager, young person that really launched your passion? I mean, when does anyone get into movies? I mean, uh, I think the, fir I, the first film I remember watching was, I, 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 I think it was, I think it was, I think it was Hellraiser with my dad. Wow. <laughs> which was obviously not and he was quite a young father so he didn't really have a concept of actually what his children should be and should and should not be allowed to watch so i think it was that i think the first film that i actually watched over and over and over again was mm -hmm. Austin Powers: international man in mystery i had a video of it and i honestly watched it i reckon maybe 40 times in two weeks um i'm word perfect on it as conrad can attest and that was yeah. that made me think okay well this is and you know I, it was comedy films that really got me into films originally um and like when i was younger i made loads of bad remakes of of spying comedy films like i made a film called tommy hilfiger which uh <laughs> which was a, basically a rip tommy hilfiger in millennium which was a complete rip off of um, austin powers um makes it a bit of rush hour so yeah those are the films that really really got me i mean when i was a young when i was younger when Hellraiser came out, I watched it because it was filmed near my house. They had the whole creepy house right near to me. And I watched it and I really enjoyed it. And then I met this horror writer who used to be in the industrial scene. And I was like, I loved Hellraiser growing up. And he was like, really? You know, that's a whole... I said, again, yeah, the house was nearby. And he said, well, you know the story of a house, right? And I was like, no. And he was like, well, Robin Gristle, the industrial band, used to have like sadomasochistic sex parties in the house and like body modification and like people getting tattoos people getting piercings and i was like oh that's why there's all the leather and the chains and stuff <laughs> it just didn't sink in when i was a 13 year old child watching it i just thought it was a really cool horror movie and then i'm like yeah when i think about it now it feels like it was a wildly inappropriate film to my dad for my dad to show me i think i was honestly about 10 when we watched that hellraiser and austin powers is your origin story yeah. is amazing <laughs> <laughs> 
Mickey, that, that thing about um, Austin Powers, Mickey being word perfect on it is something I didn't believe. And then we went to, um, we were in a bar in LA and it was, it was one of those bars where they project a movie, but they don't have the sound. And so we were having drinks and we were watching the film. And as we were watching the movie, Mickey was in my ear doing the line by line commentary of what was being said, like a sort of, like a director's cut thing. It was, it was very, very funny. So yeah, he definitely, he's definitely word perfect on it. How about you? What was your movie there? Um, my, I mean, my first real cinematic memory was Jurassic Park, I think, um, and it was that I think like that that image of the the image of the uh, the T Rex, the water moving on the on the on the on the dashboard was the one that I really kind of remember very clearly. And then the film, I sort of my kind of whatever the the film that I shouldn't have seen before I saw it, if you know what I mean, was probably in terms of certification was Die Hard, which I think I saw when I was like 11 is one of my favorite movies of all time. I, I think I've seen that film more than I've seen the other film. And I think it's, uh, I think it's a perfect movie. I think it's all got one of the best scripts of all time. I it never gets old, perfectly cast, amazingly executed. I just, I absolutely love it. That was another one that I've actually watched with my dad. Um, it was the first time I ever heard the N word actually, Die Hard of Avengers. Which- <laughs> Which was, uh, I was, I was, uh, like, that was the first one I ever saw as well. So I, I actually watched it backwards because I'd never heard of Die Hard. Obviously, Die Hard Revengers came out when we were like, I don't know, in the mid 90s. And that was the first one. I was like, wow, this is really, really good. And I've always, in some way, for some reason, obviously, I love Die Hard and I love Die Hard too. But like, there's something about Die Hard Revengers just because it, it takes me straight back to like, I don't know, watching films with my dad, maybe that makes me, I actually prefer it to the first one. Yeah, no. I do as well. Well, I don't know anything I would prefer, it, but I love I like the I like the gamification of this of the of this of the plot of it. Like the whole like, you know, the Simon says stuff of it, the fact that it's such a New York movie. It's just it's so good. It's so so good. It's such a script. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you guys met at university, is that right? Yeah. W- were you both on the same course? What were you studying? Uh, I did English lit and Mick did theology, but we went to the same, we went to a very small um like half college, half kind of Baptist ministry, like at Oxford calls and permanent private halls. And we met there. So it was very, it was a kind of, it had a very small arts intake and quite a heavy sort of religious intake. But yeah, it was a good place. Slightly weird place to go to college, but we had a good time. And when did you begin writing together? Was movies always, you're in, were you guys both in finance before? Yeah. I mean, we, I mean, from that was it. I, I sort of bought when I think about the fact that I was in finance. I was in it for about a year. I actually had a guy, an, an old intern of mine, coming out of the woodwork and say, "Look, I found some of your work." It was just, it felt like honestly, like he was showing me a different person. Um, but yeah, I was in finance as well. I was in it for about a year. Come I was in it for about what three and a half. Yeah, we always round that up. I think it was about three. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> round it up to a half. Yeah. <laughs> We always it always gets longer whenever we say it, but between us, it was like yeah, it's probably like four years, wasn't it? Something. And what was the journey from uni to finance to script writing together? Um, so I mean, obviously, I mean, we spent a lot of time at uni just watching films together and watching TV, and it was something that, and I knew it's you know this is sort of in a roundabout way. I knew Conrad was a great writer just because I read his prose before, and I just knew he had a sort of he had a brain for it and like he was interested in it in a way that I was as well. And then when we, you know, got to the end of our university careers and it looked like we had to get a job, uh, we both sort of, I'd say, I don't know, I'd speak for myself, fell into finance. It was like, wow, everyone's getting jobs. I need to get something that earns money. I'm scared about being an adult. What do I do? Okay, finance. Everyone, you know, this is a sort of viable career option. 
yeah, wasn't very good at it. Um, was eyeing the exit pretty soon into it. I actually tried to write and I thought, okay, well, now I'm doing something that I'm so ill-equipped for and I still don't want to do. How, what, how can I pivot to something I actually want to do? And what is that? And at that age, like, you know, I, I, you know, my, I love films. and I love the idea of writing. You know, I wrote plays when I was younger. I made these little short films that I was talking about. Like, it was all just a bit of a hobby. I've got an immigrant mother, Conrad has too. And the idea of actually turning that into a career doesn't feel like it was a very viable option. But the fact that I was doing banking, I think actually maybe pushed me to try and make a career or even you know, attempt to make a career out of something that I actually really liked. So I tried to write, I actually tried to write, remember Conrad, I tried to write that D.B. Cooper script, you know, that guy. Yeah, you know? yeah, 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 yeah. I was like, and I tried to do that at the same time as being in the bank and the long hours I had, you know, I was working like 80 to 100 hours a week. So it was impossible to actually do anything. And I thought, okay, well, there's no way you can even have a life, let alone another sort of semi-career on the back of it. So I thought, okay, well, I've got to get out of here. And I left. And then the first thing I had, I had some pretty good advice. I don't know. I, I, the first thing I did was try and get jobs adjacent to, to TV and film anywhere. And I went to work for some, for a talent agent, quite a notorious talent agent who used to, was massive in the nineties and had a bit of a reputation. And, you know, I, I had no other experience of what it was like to work in, media in any way and that was a bit of a baptism of fire but it got me at least near film and tv and at the same time i was writing for him working for him i made this short film it was short i mean it was supposed to be a short film we actually never finished it, it ended up being like 60 minutes long and a sort of loads of vignettes and it was about a investment banker who didn't want to be an investment banker he wants to be a dj and he thought it was really cool and i played the, i played the main character and i basically wrote all my mates into being in it and i made like a series of little videos based on it and i put them on the internet and someone saw them, an agent saw them first, and then someone from NBC saw them and thought, okay, well, this, this could be a TV show. Obviously, it never happened, but it was able, I got an agent off the back of it. Conrad was still in the bank at the time, and I was just tr trying to convince him to leave. He goes like, Con, Con, look, this is a viable career option for us now. Look, there's, I have an agent that actually, someone actually wants to potentially turn this into something that could, eat, you know, is, is closer to being on TV or, or some kind of screen. And then... Conrad got fired or made redundant, um, and it was a really good opportunity. Um, and at that point, I was I was just leaving the talent agent. I went to work for Sash Baron Cohen uh, as a he was a client of the agent, and I went to work for him as he was writing this film, uh, which never saw the light of day. Um, but again, I was like, wow, this, I could feel myself getting into this world, and like the the you know the the, the little bit of success in that short film going to NBC made me think that actually we could do it. So me and Conrad just started writing together loads. It's what the first thing we wrote was this thing called Not an Exit, which was a sort of pretentious version of what industry became. It was a, it was a, it was a, it was, a, it was a, more of a cathartic exercise of me and Conrad writing about our world and banking. And it was it was it was it showed it shared some DNA with industry, but it wasn't really like industry at all. And that was just like an experience for me and Conrad to show that we could write together, have fun doing it. We could see each other's talents. I think we could see each other. What you know, we pushed each other really well, and it was just a, it was a laugh. So then, me and Conrad wrote this. We thought, okay, well, I, I you know, some experience, some success in actually making something. And I feel like actually, I can't remember who gave me this advice, but like it's the advice I give to everyone who tries to get into film or TV. Just like I know it's it's writing a script is 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 one thing, but you need to make something that people can see because just being in my position now and being around executives, like people don't want to read stuff, which is a real, I mean, massive 
I guess, <laughs> secret in the industry, like an industry which is based solely really on scripts as a blueprint. No one actually likes reading. So like actually make something that people can watch is probably better advice. So we made this like micro budget feature film called Gregor, which was, we funded on Kickstarter. Conrad's got the post in the back, in the back of his office now. Um, and, uh, and it was just like, it was, we did everything. You know, we, you know, my, my, my now wife produced it. Uh, uh, we got our friends to be in it. We, but it was like, it was a professionalized version of what I had done on the, on the um, short film. And we made it, it got into a film festival. It suddenly felt like it was a real thing and it got us in the room for loads of things. I mean, I got us in the, through the door and like the UK film industry, the UK TV industry, the system is basically like you go in and you sell loads of ideas and then you get stuff, you know, nothing gets away and like you keep plugging at the door. And then, yeah, and then that's basically, I mean, that took us to, we, we sold like, I know, Conrad, jump in. I feel like I've been talking for ages about our biography. No, <laughs> like, loads and loads and loads of shitty projects. I mean, I, 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 no, I don't, there were, there were, there were, it was a lot of throat clearing for me and Conrad to actually figure out actually what we wanted to write about and what we thought would be good. To be honest, the, 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 the sh uh, we found that UK TV, and it might have changed since then because everything has become slightly more globalized and because of the, the streaming model and stuff like that. And everything just feels a little bit smaller and, and more villagey. But when we were trying to get into it about six years ago, the UK TV system felt like a little bit of a closed shop, especially in like half an hour comedy, which is where we started writing initially. And then they would just let they would because of because streaming was yet to take off there just weren't that many avenues for us to get people to read our stuff and you know i think when you're a commissioner there's a very the, the you're incentivized to basically keep rehiring the people with you know the older people who've done more material like it's less of a risk so you know, you know younger writers find it harder and would, back then would find it harder and harder to get people to actually engage with their material and then me and Mickey, I guess, because we we watched a lot of American TV and a lot of American film, we had, I think our writing has always been quite American inflected. And by that, I mean, I, I hate to, I'm, the word I sometimes hear people use is muscular, but what I think they mean is it's just kind of quite no holds barred, especially for English writers. Like it's just very full on. We don't really sand any edges down. It's, and, and therefore it has a kind of maybe a propulsion to it that a, a lot of American buyers immediately chimed with rather than English people. So like a lot of our early commissions were in the US. We got, you know, our first proper commission really was by a channel called Cin um, Cinemax, who, you know, great, great channel, really good executives made stuff like the Nick and Banshee. And we wrote this kind of highway woman Regency costume drama, which was kind of like, Barry, we pitched it as like Barry Lyndon, Quentin Tarantino does Barry Lyndon with a sort of biracial lead. Um, and then, you know, at the same time we were developing industry and this was about six years ago. And then, you know, obviously HBO and Cinemax and they got to the top of HBO and they had these two projects and they were like, well, we'd rather do the one about young bankers. Um, and then we just poured all our efforts into that for six years, you know, writing the pilot took ages, getting the green light took a long time as it should because HBO are very diligent about what, what they green light. And I think it bears out in the quality of the work they put out. Um, so yeah, so kind of, I know we've been talking for ages, but that's the sort of story. That's the unabridged story. <laughs> No, I always like the origin story of how people got to where they are. That's always what kind of seems to resonate most with our audience when they just hear that it will take six to 10 years on average to get <laughs> something something going. It's, although it seems, it, it does feel overnight when you're like, hey, the show just came out of nowhere. Yeah, no, and it really does. It does. I, it does. I, I, I really can't. I remember like when we started writing together, 
it's like continually giving each other not ultimatums but saying like would you still want to be doing this if we hadn't been <laughs> we have to get nothing away in 10 years like if i could tell you tomorrow in 10 years we'll have a show on i mean i pre probably said a show on hbo which was the north star for us in a number of ways i mean it's, it is for a lot of writers of tv i i and it, it was it was i think this is it comes back to the fact that there's two of us and we're, we're best friends and we can push each other because there are obviously moments where we would you know, poured a lot of work into something. Like we were doing a film four adaptation of a book, great book, but unadaptable book called Glow. Um, and it's, you know, we put a lot of work into it and then it just died. And like we just, we'd be working on it for a year and then suddenly it's just gone. And I think if it had just been me, I would have thought that would have been really dispiriting. And I, you know, it would have, it would have set me back massively. And if it had been Connor, I feel it would, be, it would have been the same for him. But because it's two of us, we can, we have to say, okay, on to the next thing. And we could almost have this, we had this sort of, shared sense of delusion about the fact that we could be successful in this and that the fact that we you know eventually are, are i guess like you know ability to use a big word <laughs> would shine through What is your writing process as a duo? Is it you sending scripts back and forth or is it both of you in the same room? We really, it really depends. I mean, it, it starts always as both of us in the same room, um, talking about story, trying to excite each other. I mean, for me, the process really starts when, especially like going season to season on a show, um, it just starts with an idea, like some, you know, like you, you feel quite fatigued coming off one season and then Mickey will send me a text or an even something as simple as an image for a character. And I'm like, oh, well, there's, you know, maybe there's, it's, it's bizarre how one image can lead you to a whole sort of story arc where you're like, okay, well, maybe we could do eight hours from just this image because it tells you where this character is at psychologically at this point in time and where he might be able to go. And then it's just me, me and Mick in a room. We write everything together. We have this phrase which we call driving where one of us is on the laptop and the other one is walking around one of us drives, one of us walks. And then we, what we do, I think the way the scripts get good quite quickly and maybe why we write quite quickly is because you've got someone with you, there's a kind of co constant process of editorial and self-refinement and we're not very precious with each other's work. So like we're good at cutting each other. We're good at like tweaking each other's stuff. But it, it's a very, I mean, it's very, it's very collaborative. It's very rarely like I'll go write half a script and then he'll go write half a script and we'll meld it together. Cause it doesn't, there's something about I don't know. It doesn't feel like it's. It doesn't feel in keeping with the way we like to actually enjoy the process, which is half yeah. the fun for half the fun for us is just kind of like shooting the shit, talking for three hours, working for twenty minutes, talking for two hours, working for half an hour. You know, it's not. It's a pretty fluid process. But I, I was. I was. Yeah, Connor, you, you were saying yesterday about like why because you know we're writing something in the moment. We wrote, we wrote it very quickly, and we we have become quite quick at writing. I think it's actually because. We've just first we've become better writers. The craft we've just better at the craft of it. And as you said, like when we started this, there would be like three hours of like fucking about, and then twenty minutes. Of I feel like the three hours is now just writing because I yeah, feel that's true. you know it just this is just this is just a function of spending so much time with each other for the last like ten years, I guess. Like especially in a professional setting, like I we sort of know exactly what the other person is about to say, and like we know whether the person <laughs> can enjoy it or not. There's no like. Oh, is 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 there? Is this gonna work? Or do, do, should I say this? I, we just say it, 
it's become really efficient. <laughs> really no filter in the way that we write. And just jumping on what Conrad said, like I I, I love the process of writing because it get we get in a room together and we 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 and we write. I mean, like I, I wouldn't like to write it so much if it was an insular, isolated thing. Like I I, I like that's why I like that's probably why I'm not a novelist amongst other reasons. <laughs> like, <laughs> probably as well. But like I like I like being in a room with people and 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 coming up with ideas and stuff. And that's why I like TV as well, because that is the you know the, the bread and butter of TV writing. Part of what Mickey said is really is is kind of is really true over time as well, which is like we're not maybe early on in our career, we'd it would be a bit there'd be a little bit more not ego in the relationship, but we'd be a little bit more fragile about each other's opinions of each other. And, and but now because we've you know we've done two seasons of this thing like we trust each other implicitly like we're very quick it just it's always like the best idea wins and it's not like a competition of who has the best idea who the whole soup is is mine and mickey's thing and so it's always about it's always about how can we get to the best idea quickest and not like who's who's going to get their ideas in the show or whose choices are editorial choices are going to be in it it's always about just making the best thing we can possibly do and that's that actually is just that i find it really gratifying because it's a kind of in a way, it's a very egoless experience, and it feels very—I um, don't know—it just feels it feels connective and nice. It's—it's it's a really—it's a kind of special thing to do with somebody else. And how did you land on putting a, an American at the center of uh, the show in a London office? Oh no, definitely the script. It was just—you know—this is a pretty rarefied, kind of hard to get your head around world, uh, which feels like a bit of a black box for a lot of people. So it felt like actually having an outsider at the center of it would be uh, useful um, in terms of the narrative. And also just like, we like telling, you know, outsider trying to be inside stories, like, you know, the, the grandiose stuff that we always reference is like, you know, Victorian novels and Vanity Fair. And, you know, we love that kind of journey of someone on the, on the, on the cusp of society trying to get in. And it feels like this is a sort of, I guess, contemporary version of that. Um, and then again, it was just like, you know, it's an American British show. We thought like, we love writing American voices. I don't know why, but I think it's because, you know, the, all the all the stuff that we spoke about before, the, 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 um, the culture we grew up in was so Americanized that it felt like, you know, the, the writing American voices came very naturally to us. Um, and yeah, I think that was, that, was, that was sort of it. I mean, and also it felt again, like, I don't know. Yeah, I felt it felt. It's, I, I don't know. I don't think we ever. We you know we had. I don't think we ever. That was ever under question, was it? Like, was that we were going to have an American lead in this? No, it was always. We love. We always loved the idea of doing something that was set in London, but felt multinational and multi-accented. And like that was the joy about setting something on a trading floor. Is like it's actually a very organic place for loads of people to come together from all walks of life, and and have loads of different voices in the show. And like the kind of. I don't know the fact that Harper and Eric are in London together, and they're obviously such American characters and so, so, so from such a specific area was kind of thrilling and fun to us. And we, we felt like kind of I don't know, there's not we couldn't think of many analogs of it, so it felt kind of original to us as well, which was nice. I also quite like the fact that you think she's the audience surrogate, or at least the U.S. audience does, because she's an outsider, she's American accented, and then actually. The trick I think the show pulls on you is that like the person you're rooting for, the person you think you should be rooting for, is actually somewhat darker than you are or you know at least yes, does things that potentially you would maybe want to do but because you have a moral compass don't 
So like, <laughs> I, I I like that about it as well. It's not that's it's not about it's I, I you know Harper is not this sort of wide eyed ingenue who comes into the world you know being like all shuts. How gonna how am I gonna make it? She she comes in with a killer mentality and she hides that from the audience for a bit. Yeah, I like that about your characters. I remember what someone was we were talking about a film the other day and someone was like I I didn't like any of the characters and I remember I just listened to a. Quentin Tarantino's podcast with Roger Avery and Roger Avery's daughters on the show and said, none of the characters were likable. And, he, and Quentin just shouted like, fuck likable. Are they interesting? Are they interesting? And that's my go-to line now when, it, when, it, when, it, when there's... But that's why like your, your show I've is full of complicated that. characters. Yeah, I've never understood that sort of likability factor. It feels like when people say that, I think, are you sort of a, you know, a network executive like where, where does it come from <laughs> can i give you some notes yeah 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 do you, are you expecting these you're not going to hang out with these people in a bar you're going to watch them you could be you're going to be entertained by them and i think interesting is the key thing i think if you can understand their motivations and their compelling moment to moment and actually mm -hmm. i think the most you know the most important thing i think or one of the most important things in tv drama is unpredictability and and not being ahead of the story and characters who constantly surprise you i don't care i don't care about their moral compass as long as i find them engaging and and i mean the other very important part of that component of course is the performance um and mahala is like a megawatt radiant incredibly charismatic actress who can do a million things by doing you know but just by just laying the camera roll on her she's just a magnificent actress so you marry those two things together like who, who cares about her like a bit of factor it's, it's it's totally it's totally subordinate to all the other stuff what do you think it is in terms of, because I've always, you know, the obvious thing to say is, you know, Tony Soprano, incredibly charismatic, murderer, sociopath, racist, uh, you know, abuser, does the worst things a human can possibly do over the course of those seasons, but you love him and you root for him. And I think it's maybe because that world is so alien to the the average audience viewer, you know, the, 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 the mob, that thinks. <laughs> Sort of, they can separate it away and be like, okay, well, that's just I'm seeing something from over there. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm watching a TV show. Whereas, like, I feel that we're obviously the banking world is is alien to a lot of people, but like the, the world of contemporary London or the contemporary world and the you know, young people and the way they're they're behaving feels kind of drawn from reality. And I think it actually makes people feel a bit queasy that there are people like are amongst them that are like that. I think and that's I, true. I think it's true. Or maybe it's maybe it's horrible. No, no, no. I think I think that's true. I think they think of the world as slightly because the mob is obviously exists, but it feels it doesn't. It feels it feels foreign in a way that the banking sector doesn't in terms of the way it impinges on people's lives. But I also think the thing with Tony versus someone like Harper, I guess, is that from moment one of the first episode, he's introspective. Like he's trying. He like he goes to therapy. He's trying to figure himself out. He has all these existential questions, which actually none of you know. He he he's 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 the whole thing about the whole thing about the Sopranos is he's doing all this shit while also being deep in self analysis about himself. Where I think I think there you know Harper, the all of our characters move you know actually maybe not so much in season two but definitely in season one move without even the single beat of self uh, self doubt or self uh, what's the word of introspection. None of them yeah. introspective, and I think I think that's the thing that people cotton on to him with is like, oh he's all of these things but he whether he wants to be better, whether he can choose to be better, it's kind of like he's at least doing the work is so wrong, but like he's he's kind of set about, you know, he's so far away from doing it, but in a way he's trying to. And I think but that's- the, It is the inciting incident, his introspection. Yeah. And, exactly. it, and he also is in his forties. 
which I feel exactly. like people forget about the characters in industry that they are in their early 20s. Anyway. He's also like, he's also really, he's weirdly, and Gandolfini does this thing where like, he's very, he's childish, really. Yeah. He's just a big, you know, he goes, he's constantly like going to the fridge and grazing. He's eating ice cream in front of the thing. He's constantly, he's, he's, at the, he's always at the mercy of his most um, kind of childish primal instincts. He's fuck, he's doing, you know, he wants to argue, he wants to fuck, he wants to, there's something kind of, I don't know, it's toddlerish. So there's kind of something quite empathetic about that, I think. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. No, you're right. And he is quite endearing in a weird way. Yeah. But, but but I guess from the... And he's got that criminality aspect, which has always been so... Sexy. I don't know. Yeah, like Sexy, they say... Yeah. German, was it saying Goodfellas? Is it Goodfellas or Casino when he said, if you had any balls, you'd be out there robbing for a living? <laughs> yeah. Which is kind yeah. of what I feel about Tony. When I went to New York last time, I took a $100 Uber to Tony Soprano's house. <laughs> just to take a selfie outside because there was a, there was a tour but the tour bus because it's a residential area you can't drive a fucking tour bus of celeb fans down someone's driveway so i just got the postcode and went to tony soprano's house and stood outside for five minutes and then the the garage door opened and this woman drove out and it's like no like gold porsche peak new jersey and I, she rolled down the window and i said sorry sir, i'm just a fan from london I just want to take a couple of selfies and I'll be gone. And she was like, that's fine, but don't go in the fucking pool. I swear to God, <laughs> the amount of people I get in robes going in the pool over here is just too much. And I was like, I won't. But. How, how, how quickly does that become really annoying? And how, for how long do you actually like it? I mean, it depends. I mean, if you. She like, seems to just get it. Yeah. And just like, it's cool. I, I kind of know what I signed up for and it's okay. Yeah, exactly. I wonder, if, did she buy it after the. The, the show ended absolutely yeah because yeah, yeah, it was fun. a family there before apparently because yeah. some people have said like the dad used to let people in to take photos in the kitchen but <laughs> yeah. i didn't go that far but i did find when i was leaving i was like i need to take some sort of memory from here and weirdly there was this big rock just next to the tree that looked like a bit of paving from the wall that might have fell off so i took a rock <laughs> that i kept is that your moon rock <laughs> but then, then all, all all the guys in the team kept on sending me memes of the guy in Parasite with his rock, with, with yeah. that big stone, and they're like, "This is this is the New Jersey version of you right now with your <laughs> lucky rock." Going back, Jay Duplass, incredible casting. Yeah. How did how did he come about? I mean, he's insane. He's insanely great actor. We he was he was a quite late addition to the roster because we were me, me, we we sort of had different versions of Bloom in terms of age and also just what we wanted from the character. And then quite late in the day, we sent him the script and he read it and then he sort of binge watched the first season and then you know he was on board pretty quickly. I mean, it, he was a really He's a phenomenal, I mean, he's just like, we were always massive fans of Transparent and we just thought he was amazing in that. And he's always played these kind of affable and he, the way he put it was quite interesting. He said he always plays quite feminine characters or, or mm -hmm. we display female, classically female traits, whatever that means, you know, uh, empathy and affability. And, and then 
it, you know, it really clicked for us. Just it, it basically, I mean, his, his character is obviously very hard to pin down. He's a little bit of an enigma. He has a reputation that precedes him, but also he kind of feels in, like in the, the, the sort of Indian summer of his career, he's post-success, he's all these things. And what he wanted from, like me and Mickey always like to write characters, the, the central relationships of the show, we like them to have this kind of ineffable quality where you can't pin down, especially between the older and the younger people, quite what's in it for both of them. And that they're kind of always circling each other and trying to extract maximum value from each other without quite knowing what they want at any point. And like, we always had this inception, this kind of in, this meet cue, if you want, between the two of them in the, in the bar, which we always kind of imagined as a bit of a lost in translation moment between Harper and, and Jesse Bloom. And when we, you know, when we started, when we saw the rushes from that scene, we were like, oh, wow, this is fantastic because it's exactly what we want. It's so hard to place exactly where they stand, what he wants from her. Like, it's a quasi romance, but it's a kind of, it's not a physical one. It's an intellectual one and all this sort of stuff. And obviously he becomes a, a more dark character as the season wears on without giving too much away. But Jay's, Jay's inherent likability makes you warm to him. So it does that, allows us to do a kind of a, a bit of a sleight of hand with the viewer, which is really, really good. And, you know, as he's, he's obviously a great comic actor as well. And we started to write into Jesse's sense of mischief and playfulness, which he exhibits in the third episode of the second season, where he's kind of got everyone wrapped around his little finger. And we started to write, you know, we started to write the dialogue a little bit more for, for Jay's voice as the season wore on. And I think that, and, and tried to make him as funny as possible, which was maybe an instinct we wouldn't have hit as hard if we hadn't cast him, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Whose idea was it to have him playing with the Wu-Tang generator? I think that was Mickey's. Was that yours, man? So yeah, I'm a big, I'm quite a big Wu Tang fan. I mean, they're, 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 this is a bit of an anachronism in the show, in, in that there's they have like a Wu Tang poster on the wall. Like I, I saw mean, that. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're, in Harper's they're, house, right? They're 22. I mean, maybe Gus would might have. Uh, you know, he does. I'm just saying, I was a Wu Tang fan because my brother, older, I have an older brother who was a Wu Tang fan, and I, I know he he got. I know I, he hasn't actually watched the episodes yet because they haven't come out in the UK, and he's trying to save himself from them. But I did have to send him the end of episode seven of Liquid Swords because he actually like. I remember him us sitting in his room like in the dark and listening to that intro from um, Shogun Assassin and like like my like the like I didn't have any hair on the back of my neck then, but like it like everything standing up and like it feeling and me having goosebumps and like the idea that we could put that in a TV show like you know, 25 years later was kind of thrilling for me and him but yeah I have a teenage trauma of when I watched well I, I always saw Method Man smoking plants and then I watched kids where they have a lit literally a <laughs> YouTube how-to <laughs> on how to assemble a blunt and then I, I assembled a blunt for the first time and was just pumping Method Man to Cal, thinking I was really about it, and then just had a panic attack and existential crisis for the next two hours. But I How still love it. 18, when I, yeah, 18, 19, 18, yeah, I was just leaving college, just heavily into indie movies, and yeah, Wu-Tang and Aphex Twin were just for go-to. <laughs> yeah, I actually, I, I actually think I listened to Wu-Tang the first time I smoked weed as well, and I was I was very young i mean obviously way too young I, and i smoked it in the house with my parents which was probably the stupidest thing i could have possibly done because i was caught I, I vomited and was caught about five seconds later but there, for like 10 seconds i thought wow this is exactly what it must be like <laughs> to be to be in wu-tang <laughs> who was your favorite member and solo uh, it, I, honestly it's changed from throughout the years like i think when i was younger it was ghostface and now it's and and then it was jizza for years and and now it's probably raekwon and like and i feel like I, i'm trying to think of the ones i've seen live i've seen ghostface live 
think AFC Raekwon, never seen Jizza. Like Jizza did a secret gig when we were at university, like in a really random place and it was impossible to get in. So um, I feel that's one of my great regrets, but um, yeah, I love them all. Yeah, I think Ghostface, well, Jizza Liquid Sword's best album, Ghostface, strongest solo career. Yeah, yeah. Or Cuban Links, actually. I mean, I mean, that's actually, I was, I was literally actually listening to that yesterday and remind, reminding myself about how good it is. Um, Isn't it still insane that there was no weak member of a group? There was no the Michelle of, the, you know, like there's Michelle, there's, there's no, there's no weak members of, of Wu-Tang. I find. Yeah, uh, yeah I, I won't repeat what I just said because, you know, credit to the people who are dead. But, uh, <laughs> no, but ODB's second album is insane. Yeah, fine. But if you were to pick, okay, fine. But if you were to pick, if you had to pick one weak link, who would it be then? You God, maybe. Yeah, maybe you God. <laughs> you God. Well, ODB was such a big character yeah. and so insane that it kind of it kind of made it all okay. Can we talk about um, Ken Long? He's my yeah. favorite member of a show. Is he is he your favorite person to write for? He has so many killer lines. He's definitely someone that we we didn't write for enough in the first first season. Like we had this joke that he just come at the first season. He was we did this thing which was you know we were like we're writing a show about young people. We actually had I don't think anyone noticed this, but we had a rule where if you know we could only write scenes if one of our grads was in them. So there are no scenes of Ken by himself. There are no scenes of any of the characters other than the main four by themselves in the first season, which is obviously a rule we broke in season two, which was helpful. Um, but he, we had this joke where he just, all he did really was come into scenes, say something, usually steal the scene and then walk out. And then, you know, when we were, when it came out and we had done all the editing and stuff and we realized actually how phenomenal Ken was, we know he was, we knew it was good, but like, he just has a, a commanding presence that we thought is like, you know, Conrad says before, he's a generational talent and he's, and he, he's been in so many things and you now he's popped up in, in everything, but he's never... I don't, I think he's never really been given an opportunity to really show off that talent. So like when we got season two, we were like, okay, we have to just fucking make him almost a lead. Like you know, his relationship with Harper is one of the most interesting things in the show, one mm. of the best to write for. And we thought, okay, let's just, let's just bump him up. It's insane that he, it's insane that he's in our show, really. Yeah. Like, it's like, it's like, it's like having given it's in Wales and given the budget and given that me and Mickey had never done anything before and everyone else was new cast. It's like having, Fucking Zinedine Zidane come and play in your, in your five-a-side team at, in Vauxhall. Like he's he's ridiculously good and so charismatic. You can just run. He's the sort of actor you can just run the camera on, and he can do pretty much nothing. And like, not, I don't mean performance-wise. I mean you, he barely has to speak, and he's just he has this incredible energy and this charisma, like almost a movie star charisma, I would say. Um, and yeah, we're just very lucky. And like, I, 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 to me and Mickey, it blows our minds that we get to write him such a great leading role so early in our career and like hopefully we'll get to do it again how hard is it for the cast to take in all the financial jargon i'm super surprised that they honest. i find it really i mean i've said this before in interviews but like i'm astounded that they make it sound so natural because it is really another language you know you get those pages marisa bella who we just throw every single language in europe at and she has to learn it phonetically um she obviously is amazing at doing that. But I honestly think like the, the it's similar when you get pages and pages of dialogue about vol swaps and whatever. Like it's it's it is a foreign language. And the way that actually there is also a lyricism and almost like rhythm to it, which makes it sound realistic. And actually, you know, for to, to, it's very important to us that people in that world, 
as as small of part of the audience that they are in the finance world, they hear it and it doesn't ping for them. And that they, you know, they they can these these actors are just incredible at selling it. I don't know, I don't know how they became so good at it, um, but they are. I'm I true it's hard for them. I think they've said it's really hard. Do you have a finance advisor on set? Do you have someone fact checking? We have a consultant. We have yeah. a number of consultants actually. We have a consultant who helps us with the story, and then we have consultants on set who kind of, you know, either me and Mickey are on set making sure that the, everything feels correct and the blocking feels right and and the intonation. You know, obviously some of these words, like you see them for the first time, you have no idea how to pronounce them. So we're, there's always someone making sure that nothing really slips through the cracks. Inevitably, stuff does, but we're, we're pretty rigorous about um, all that stuff. And the actors are very conscientious and well prepared so by the time that they're on set often a lot of these questions have been asked and you have i think without doubt the most explicit show i've ever seen on the bbc <laughs> and i really like the the portrayal of the sex and relationships that the encounters are sometimes weird sometimes people are too high to perform the energy drops out it's very frank and honest but can you talk about that? And I was wondering, did, did this make it a harder sell for the show that you had that such mm. a hard tone with uh, sex and relationships, nudity, et cetera? I, I, I think this, the sex scenes in terms of the sellability of the show is a little bit chicken and egg. It was like, I mean, I, it's not chicken and egg at all. I mean, actually, what am I saying? It's like it, HBO wanted loads of sex in it. I mean, it's a, you know, they, we, we, we presented a version which had pretty explicit sex scenes and drug scenes mm -hmm. in it and in the scripts. And they were like, okay, well, this feels like, especially in a London setting, this feels like something we haven't seen before. Because obviously, you know, there was girls which had explicit sex scenes that were come sometimes messy and weren't romantic and, you know, and, and ended, as you said, like halfway through or didn't end at all. And they felt like that was a reflection of a lot of sex that young people are having. Um, and in terms of the amount of it, it's, it's it's it is very, no, the sex in the show is is a reflection of I guess how how much how, you know how how much sex is important to people of that age um, and we didn't want to shy away from it and it, all the sex scenes have some sort of power dynamic in them which I think speaks to the character and speaks to the story and I I don't think they're gratuitous I think they're actually really really important not just for the atmosphere of the show but also for pushing character and story. Uh, but yeah, it wasn't. It was never. It, there wasn't really a debate about it. Really, the HBO are very, very good with us. Like they, 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 they focus in on stuff that we already, already want to do, rather than pushing us in directions that we don't want to go. I'm. Re I am surprised that it's on the BBC, and the BBC have been really good as well because it is very explicit, especially mm -hmm. in season two. I mean, there are stuff in season two which I, I very much doubt has ever been on the BBC before, let alone BBC One. Um, and we got no notes about them. I mean, they were. They, we got notes about other stuff. But um, but not not nothing nothing about the sex scenes. If you if you I don't know Connor if you've got a different memory memory of it, but they were they were always pretty like fine with that stuff. Yeah, they have been. I mean, they the is you know it's primarily an HBO show which the BBC joined uh, later in terms of you know topping up our budget and stuff. So we do have notes from both of them. But they, they, the BBC have been very good in allowing the kind of the you know the HBO version of the show to to, to sit on their channels and on iPlayer. What was your toughest scene to write this season? What was the one that you kept on going back over and over? Was there something that stands out? Harper, Harper and JD, uh, the whole that whole strand in episode five in Berlin, the, the first kitchen scene uh, and their fight, really. Those were things that we, we took a while to write 
a while to conceive, a while to really drill down on the, the kind of human psychodrama of it and what their relationship was all about and really kind of trying to get underneath that. And then, you know, uh, you know, it's we had to do a lot. The actor had to do a lot, but we as writers had to do a lot in quite a, quite a little amount of screen time, especially as it pertains to exposition around the family dynamic and about and the thematic resonance of their relationship in terms of the wider themes of the show. Um, so, you know, me and Mick spent ages on that, a lot of redrafts, a lot of, you know, stuff we had to do in, in post as well to sort of finesse little bits of it and really make sure that the themes of the, that the scenes were singing. Um, but yeah, that, those were those were very, very tough scenes. How did Nathan come on board to do the score? You have incredible music throughout your two seasons. One of the best theme tunes as well. The industry score is fantastic. He is like, he's insane. Like, so we have a music supervisor called Ollie White, who's fantastic. I think the best in the business. Um, I mean, the fact that we have, because our budget is kind of, you know, it's relatively small in comparison to other HBO shows. We have to work with, music that maybe that people haven't heard like we have a few massive needle drops in season two which are great but like you know that they took up a lot of our budget and they they really we only really got them because the you know the managers of the the bands and the artists like the show um but in season one we we were working with stuff unknown stuff and we were trying to find a composer and you do this you know you go through this normal route of going through all these like tv composers um and like although they were good it just didn't feel like they were really hitting what we wanted. And so Ollie sent us Blue Spring, which was Nathan's album. And we just like devoured it, loved it, loved the title track, obviously, which we turned into the theme tune for industry. And we had a meeting with him and he just like, you know, he's obviously insanely intelligent. He's, uh, he's an amazing musician. He's so humble. Um, he had never really written for film before. Um, so like it was a it was a new thing for all of us, and it was kind of again speaking to HBO, it was HBO that were like go for him, go for him, like just like a lot of the season one was just like this feels good, let's do it, and like <laughs> and, and it had again, you know it, it, it with differing results and in, in, for differing things, but for the music it was a real risk I think to just put you know a non a, a composer who had never composed before um, really in a in a TV show or you know, eight hour TV show. And we kind of all worked together. We sort of learned on the job. I mean, from season one to season two, the music I think has improved massively just because Nathan has got better as a, uh, as a composer and he just, and like, he's so quick. And like, I think the, the co collaboration between me, Conrad and Nathan and Ollie and Dan Elms, who's the, um, um, the other guy in the music team, it, it became very collaborative. It was like, he would, you know, he would do some sketches. He send them to us. We send them back. We said this works. This doesn't work. Let's try it to this kind of picture. Let's do this bit more. Sometimes the notes would be like, it needs to be, it needs to hit me harder, or like, like it, it needs to be euphoric or whatever. Like we and like I, I'm sure for a com composer, me and Conrad being like, it has to be a banger, isn't a great note. <laughs> but like <laughs> Nathan as a DJ totally understood what we wanted to do. Um, so yeah, he was just like, he, like that's one of my. I, on a on a on a on a list of amazing collaborations of the show, I feel like working with Nathan and the music team has just been insanely fun. Yeah, like, using the music is just like it's just like it's such a satisfying part of the post production process. Yeah, it's really it is. It's probably the best one of the best bits actually of the whole thing is just because uh, especially uh, it's it's the kind of the it's the pro, the sound mix and the grade and the music in terms of just scrubbing it up and how much it elevates the raw footage for it gives it another twenty five percent in terms of quality. It's just really really heartening. Um, 
And yeah, and I'm just laughing at sometimes our notes to Nathan are just so diffuse. They're like, yeah, can it, can you, yeah, can it just, can it just be sick? Is, is that all right? And he's like, yeah. <laughs> we do. Sometimes, I think he gets, he probably, I mean, he's, he's so nice. He would never say this, but like we sometimes give insanely prescriptive notes. Like, can that little beat actually be slightly more there? Like, can we like minor this and like, and like, they can the melody, whatever, like very specific. And then as Conrad says, sometimes we're like, this needs to be better. Like, can we just, can we just be harder? It needs to be a better. <laughs> Um, yeah, made, made, me, made me feel something in my stomach. And he always delivers. Yeah, he always does. What was it like working with Lena Dunham? She directed your pilot for the first season. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. How was it working with her? It was very fun. I mean, yeah, Lena, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a weird entry point for her because it was like she'd only written, I mean, obviously she'd written, she'd done, she showrun her you know, 10, 10 years for 10 years a show, groundbreaking show, which she was the center of in so many ways. So this was a bit of more of a sort of jobbing director job for her. She, we had already been greenlit. We were looking for directors. Uh, Kathleen McCaffrey, who is one of our executives of HBO, uh, has a long-standing relationship with Lena, was on Girls. Um, and I think Lena's came in for their sort of, like, you know, not just to catch up and was like, do you have anything for me? You know, she has a deal with HBO. And they gave her the first, I think it was four scripts of industry at that point. And she read them overnight and she was like, wow, I really want to do this. And they were like, you want to do this? And it was like, okay, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this is a departure for you. And, but, and so she came over to Wales and it was like, it was, it was fun. It was like a mad experience. It was, it was very, I mean, the first time we met, we, me and Connor were absolutely enormous fans of girls and her. So the first time we met her, we met her in the hotel, a hotel in London. It was just like, it was a sort of out of body experience, probably because I was insanely hungover as well, which I'm not sure she knows. Um, but it was, it was mad. It was crazy. And then she did the first episode and then, you know, she, she did some cuts of it and it was a very sort of jobbing director, like um, uh, jobbing director process. Um, and like any other director, then she went and someone replaced her. And finally, I wanted to quickly just tell the listeners to go check out your vice list you created. We've been doing <laughs> this for two years now, and I think you guys may have the best list yet, especially to my personal taste. <laughs> That's very kind. James White is one of the most slept on films ever, which I always, always recommend. Peep Show is the most depressing comedy I've ever seen. <laughs> Chicken Corner was right next to where I used to live, which was really? real. yeah. And the blockbuster where what part of London is that? That's Northwest London. They they used to shoot in Harlesden. Okay, yeah, yeah. And so the blockbuster is where my old blockbuster used to be, where <laughs> where Mark's trying to get himself run over. Yeah, before the wedding. Yeah, which is really yeah. great. And do you guys believe Mad Men is better than The Wire? Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Me too. Yeah um it's it's more Mad Men is, is honestly like when i watch it i'm like this is the best tv show ever and then i watch the sopranos i'm like actually i forgot about the sopranos but the conversation for the belt i think is between those two and not between Mad Men and the wire i really love i love the wire and i respect it hugely but it's it's Mad Men is Mad Men is you know I, I whenever i go back to it as mick says it's not only how rich it is on every level it's just wildly entertaining it's, it's kind of quite it remembers it it's actually and sopranos does it as well it just remembers that actually part of fun it, it, you have to be silly as well. Like you have to be silly. Yeah. And like a lot of those, 
a lot of a lot of the gags in Mad Men are kind of like when the guy I mean, gets run over with the lawnmower. Yeah, with, exactly. Fucking hilarious. Exactly. Just just something. Yeah, like that's a really good example. And just like there's so many lines in The Sopranos which are just like you can tell of just the writers making each other laugh. Like whereas The Wire, I don't think David Simon is humorless. I think he's brilliant, but I think I think he's. I think he's. I think it's it's a slightly harder sell on some level, but that doesn't mean I, I think The Wire is you know one of the great masterpieces of TV. But I, I also I think the, I think Mad Men is is in terms of rewatchability at least it puts it um, in the ground. I think. And I I have one re- recommendation to leave you guys on. Have you guys ever seen the Billionaire Boys Club? <laughs> no. With Judd Nelson. No. What is that? This is a true story about a group of eighties LA yuppie kids yeah they just made a they made a terrible they just i'm not gonna say terrible they made a film about it with (laughs) with kevin spacey that film's ghastly that's my abomination this is the og this is like i always pitch this as um uh patrick bateman's wonder years oh wow this is bateman's teen years that sounds awesome three-part miniseries what make sure you watch the extended cut where where is is it available anywhere there's no dvd I think it's only on Pirate physical. Bay. Yeah, yeah, Amazon. That's right. He said it. <laughs> but yeah, I highly recommend it. There's a montage. There's that great '80s montage where they're like, they say to the boss, "Well, if you gotta be going to these meetings, you gotta look the part." And he's like, "Yeah, what do you mean?" And they're like, "Cause you need work." And they just cut to hard needle drop to pet shop boys. Let's make lots of money. Oh and God. they're just going through Rodeo Drive, just going to Armani, just buying six suits. And it's just that, that actually sounds like crap to us. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's stunning. I might have to watch it immediately. <laughs> Highest recommendation. <laughs> sounds well, awesome. I love that. And, just because, and also just because you mentioned Patrick Bateman, you mentioned Roger Avery before. And I know Bray Snellis listens to this podcast. And I'm sure Roger Avery does as well. Can he just do something with Glamorama? Um, Glamorama, <laughs> so, we call it. <laughs> so... I'm friends with Brett and he's told me Roger owns the script. Yeah. He's got the life rights. It's impossible for him to, he's easy and has, he has the small budget and the big budget versions of the script. Yeah. And it just can't get off the ground, but we are, Brett's new book is out next year and we do have some big master plan to screen Glitterati, you know, the extended cut of the, European vacation? Yeah, yeah. The the um Victor Ward bit that was in the rules of attraction. Yeah. yeah. So we're gonna try and screen that because that's only he is open to screening it in certain situations. So oh hopefully my God. I mean like that's like the, the Hopefully London the and possible. flights and a nice hotel is enough, but that's what that's all we can offer. But we're gonna uh, try. Got, and he only got... has it on his laptop. He hasn't even exported it. He does play he plays it through Final Cut Pro. You've got to get us to that. If you speak, yes. if, you, if you speak, if you speak to Brett, tell him to watch Industry. I think he already does. I think he's mentioned really? your, your first. No, season he hasn't. We're, we're, no, we're, he hasn't. We're absolutely enormous fans of his, and we're we're like, we're like sort of I don't know what the equivalent of the super day. fans. We're super yeah, like, like, like if, he, if he's the Dead Sea Scrolls, then I'm a sort of you know a scroll Aryan or whatever they're called. <laughs> okay, I can I can message him and see if he's on his radar. Yeah, yeah, see, and see, and, but it should be, you know, yeah, it's, it's, it's totally his bag. Yeah, yeah, and, see, and like you know, turn to sort of you know, you can weather season one because then season two is kind of that's where it all kicks off. You're being hard on season one, but okay, <laughs> <laughs> it's recency bias for every for recency us. bias, exactly. Yeah. When season three comes out, we'll be like season two was shit as well, exactly. It's a healthy, it's a healthy, it's a healthy approach to stuff, I think. Okay, this has been so much fun talking to you guys.
Thank you, man. Yeah, it was great. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us. We really enjoyed it. Cheers, guys. Thank you. Speak soon. Toodles. Speak soon. There you go. Mickey Down and Comrade K. Industry. Streaming now on HBO. Streaming now on BBC. I highly recommend it. It's such a good show. And those guys really know their fucking shit. They know like their history of screenwriting. Which is why I think they're going to do so well. Okay, that's it. Thank you for listening. Thank you to my new producer. I have a producer on the show now. Flynn Rodham. Thank you so much. You are my Joel Silver. And Telephone Tel Aviv for my beautiful music. Joshua Eustace, you are my Telephone Tel Aviv. There's no greater group than Telephone Tel Aviv in the world of electronic music, so he has no other. And thank you guys for listening. I'll speak soon.